Grace, mercy, and peace with you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This section of Matthew chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning has three main sections, and each section ends by saying that Jesus fulfilled a certain prophecy. So the overarching theme of this session is that Jesus fulfills the scripture for you, for you and your salvation. You know, in each session there are things that we can learn. We'll look at three questions for each session. First question we'll look at for each session is what is the specific prophecy that Jesus is actually fulfilling? What does this teach us about the work of Jesus? And then finally, what does that mean for you as a Christian? Before we look at the three specific prophecies, I want to briefly talk about the overarching theme of the chapter, that Jesus fulfills everything. And with that comes this. Nothing in this chapter, or in Jesus' life, or in your life, is accidental. Nothing. Everything had a design. Everything had a plan. I do believe that is indeed the foundation for all that we're going to hear about today. As Jesus fulfilled these scriptures, it's because it's exactly what God wanted to happen. It wasn't just like this randomly happened, and then Matthew's like, oh, that looks like it fulfills this prophecy. No, everything happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen. Nothing was accidental, nothing was by mistake. In fact, what we see happening in chapter 2 and throughout the Gospels is that the incarnate word is living out the written word. We see that again and again this morning. And this is true for you as well. Right? Consider Psalm 139. It says, And in your book, they were all written. All the days that you were going to live before you were born, they were all written out. As it says in Psalm 31, Your time, your future is in his hands. Everything. It's all written out. It's all part of God's plan and good purpose. This is a really important thought as we enter a new year. Hopefully it's a revolutionary thought for you as you enter a new year, because what it can allow you to do is to stop wasting so much time complaining that things aren't the way they should be in your life. That this thing isn't what you thought it would be, or that thing isn't what you thought it would be, or you're not where you thought you should be. It's all in God's hands. If you can change it, great. But if you cannot, be faithful where God has placed you and where he has you. This is what God has for you. All of your days, every single one of them, were written in his blood. They're covered by the blood of Christ. You are where you're supposed to be. God has you there. You spend this whole year wishing you lived in a different year or a different time or that things weren't this way or that way. You've wasted it. You've missed out. If you spent the last two years wishing you didn't live in a time in which things were this crazy or in a pandemic or whatever, you've wasted it. Repent. Look at where God has you and be faithful where he has you. Your days are covered by the blood of Christ. Right? Rejoice, you Christians, loudly. Why? Because you have Christ Jesus. So whatever's going on with your time, with your days, 
They're all in God's gracious hands. No less for you than they were for Jesus. You are exactly where God wants you. Rejoice in that. Be faithful in that. Trust in that. Flowing out of that, the very first prophecy Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills is, Out of Egypt I called my son, son from Hosea 11.1. 1. It's an interesting verse because in its context, it's about the nation of Israel. Hosea 11 recounts Israel's history. And this verse is a sum, really, of the Lord's kindness and faithfulness and generosity to his people. That he brought them out of Egypt. That he rescued them from 400 years of slavery. That he did that for them. And yet Hosea 11 goes on to recount the people's constant rejection. Their consistent rejection of him. Their consistent disobedience. Their consistent idolatry. Their breaking of the covenant over and over again. And you have within this chapter this anguished appeal of God to his people that yes, he sent them to exile, but they will not be in exile forever. That God is not going to forsake them forever. That God is going to bring back his people, he's going to redeem his people, he's going to rescue his people. So Jesus, the true Israel, he comes and he lives out their history perfectly doesn't commit idolatry. He doesn't forsake the Lord's. Not only does he live out their history perfectly, he lives out all of the commandments, as we heard on New Year's Eve. He lives them all out perfectly. Both in the details of their history and in perfect obedience to all of God's holy will. And Jesus, too, comes with that same divine longing, that same divine anguish over the people's sin and rejection of their Lord's. And Jesus comes, and in his birth, in his life, he shows the very thing. That is, God cannot, God will not, give up on you, his people. It's rather ironic, too, the way Matthew structures chapter 2, because out of Egypt I called my son, you would actually expect, after he's called out of Egypt. And yet part of what Matthew's going to show in this chapter and throughout is that Israel itself has become a wicked Egypt, ruled by a wicked king, a wicked pharaoh, Herods. So that both in leaving Israel, he's been called out of Egypt, and then actually he's called out of Egypt itself. What does all of this mean for you? It should be abundantly clear. It means that Jesus will not give up on you. That he will not abandon you. That he will not forsake you. And perhaps at times it feels like it, right? If you feel like the last year or two or several years or whatever it is aren't going the way you thought they should, then it becomes easy to think, well, perhaps God has forgotten about me. Perhaps he has abandoned me. Perhaps he has forsaken me. And yet we have here with Jesus fulfilling out of Egypt, I called my son, you have a promise as well that God will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. He's not going to leave you in your sin and misery. He is coming again for you. It's true, too. Perhaps you don't worry about that for yourself. Perhaps you have loved one. Perhaps your children. Perhaps your spouse. Perhaps your grandchildren. Perhaps a dear friend. 
has abandoned the faith. And they've walked away from all of it. And you look at them and you wonder, has God given up on them? And the promise here out of Egypt that called my son is no. God does not forsake or abandon his people. In the whole history of Israel is God continuing to send his prophets to send people back to his holy people to call them to repentance. One of the most beautiful examples, right, is Nathan the prophet, as he's called to go and confront David, who's committed adultery and murder, who has indeed, as a confession, say, abandoned the faith. And God sends Nathan the prophet in to see him, to call him to repentance. And he repents. David wasn't looking for Nathan the prophet to come and call him to repentance. David wasn't asking for it. David was quite content sitting on his throne, looking like the great hero who rescued the war widow's wife and was ruling his kingdom faithfully, but God knew the truth. And God called him to repentance. It's no different for your loved ones. Right? Perhaps God will use you as a Nathan in their lives to call them to repentance. Perhaps he'll use another pastor to call them to repentance. Whoever it is, make no mistake about it, that they are God's baptized child who's running away from him, who's rejecting him and his promises, that God is sending those to call them to repentance. One of the most astonishing things in the whole Bible to me is Saul, who consistently rejects the word of the Lord every time he hears it. God still keeps sending the word of the Lord to him. Again, and again, and again. We have in Christ's birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, we have a sure and certain promise that he will not and cannot give up on you, your loved ones. He will keep coming for them. He does it through word and sacraments. Every time the word is preached and read, every time the sacraments are administered, God is coming for his people. He's saying, I will not give up on you. I will not forsake you. I will not abandon you. The very same promise he gave before his ascension, right? It's in Matthew 28. He is with us always, even to the very end of the age. And so we have here in this prophecy out of Egypt, I called my son. We have a promise, a solemn promise, that Christ is fulfilling all that he promised him to fulfill. And part of that, a large part of that, God's faithfulness, his kindness, his generosity, and not giving up on his people. The next section we have fulfilled in Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is said, as you know, after Herod decides not enough just to make sure he gets the one child he's supposed to get, but he wants to make sure he has everything covered, so he goes after every child in the area that's two years old or younger to wipe them all out, all the little boys, to make sure none of them are the king, to make sure none of them can overthrow him and his reign. That's quite horrific. It's a very, one of the most chilling stories in the Bible that you read. It's just cold-blooded slaughter of little children. <coughs> As we know in our day and age, it's not uncommon for Herods of various names and various countries 
to slaughter little babies. Happens daily in our country by the thousands. In fact, we're going to have a service of life on January 19th, shortly before the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, because of this kind of thing. And yet, as horrific as this is, as bloody as it is, this tragedy, for all its bloodshed and horror, is still part of the plan. God is still using this as part of the plan for his son. And it's interesting what, Jer- or what Matthew chooses from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is a joyous chapter. And in Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah, that's an unusual thing. There's not a lot of joy. There's a lot of sorrow and weeping in Jeremiah. And yet Jeremiah 31, you know it, mostly because of the promise at the very end, verses 31 and following, of the new covenants. We hear those verses all the time, and we know those pretty well. That God's going to make a new covenant with his people. And so, Matthew chooses the gloomiest verse from one of the most joyous chapters in the whole book of Jeremiah. Why? Well, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah picks Rachel because Rachel died near Bethlehem. And the picture Jeremiah has is Rachel watching as the children of Israel go off to exile, as they're being taken captive. That is what's causing her weeping. That's what's causing her mourning. He uses her to show the horror of the exile. And Matthew picks up on this, and he has her, he plops her down here near Bethlehem, near where she died, and he uses her to weep and mourn over the babies that were slaughtered. What it shows us in the life of Christ, what it prepares us for, is that an end of exile only comes through the shedding of blood. The road to salvation always goes through bloodshed. Redemption only comes through sorrow and suffering. And that is the clear teaching from beginning to end of Scripture. And so too, for you, perhaps you will experience, like many of our brothers and sisters we pray for week in and week out, you will have a wicked Herod over you who is oppressing and persecuting the church. Who is going after the church and seeking to destroy them, even shedding the bloods of Christians. And this, too, is happening daily throughout the world. Even today, there are going to be Christians who die for their faith, who die confessing the faith, or who even at this very moment are hiding somewhere to worship because they live in fear of being found and executed for gathering to worship Christ. And yet we have the promise here that bloodshed leads to salvation. That those who die confessing Christ, that those who die on account of Christ, they will be avenged. God will make all things right. They go to be with their Savior now. And we can look at that, so whatever persecution we're suffering, we can look at that and have hope. So, too, we can look at Rachel. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Perhaps that's where you're at. Perhaps you're full of lamentation and weeping and great mourning over whatever it is you're going through in your life right now. And again, what does the Lord promise here? 
that through suffering, through sorrow, eventually comes redemption. Doesn't mean it'll come right this moment. Does not mean it'll come in your lifetime. But again, part of what we do is we look forward to the day, to Judgment Day, where God will set all things right. Where He will fix it all. And so we can live in that trust, knowing that all things are in God's hands. This takes us back to the overarching theme, that nothing's accidental. That God has a design and plan for it all, even your suffering, even your sorrow. Don't usually use family examples, but I thought this one was fitting. My grandma just turned 89 a few weeks ago. She lost her daughter-in-law to COVID just recently, and her son is still in the hospital with COVID and just went back to ICU this week. And she was asked how she's feeling about these things, and she said, he's in the Lord's hands. How can she say that? How can she just say in the face of death and suffering and heartache, in God's hands. It's because she knows, she has confidence, that the God that she's trusted for 89 years is still going to be faithful. He's still going to do what he's promised. He's still going to come through that at the end of sorrow and suffering is redemption. She believes that. She trusts that. This does not mean, going back to what we said earlier about stop wasting time, doesn't mean there's not a place for the role of lament in the life of a Christian. Lament is a godly thing, it's a biblical thing. Lament and weeping and great mourning have their place in the life of the Christian. We have psalms of lament. I'm seeing you out in an article today, it's a very brief summary of what the psalms of lament mean for you as a Christian. They teach us how to pray in the face of sorrow. You just how to pray in the face of grief and heartache. And one thing they teach us is that most of those, almost every single one of those, except for one, ends with hope, ends with joy, ends with the knowledge that at the end of suffering and sorrow comes redemption, that joy does indeed come in the morning. What did we hear in 1 Peter 4? After we're told that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, especially suffering from the name of Christ, the last verse of that section is quite powerful. From a slightly different translation, so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right, and trust your lives to God who created you, for he will never fail you. That is the hope of the Christians throughout Scripture. That no matter what sorrow or grief or persecution or suffering or what have you that you're going through, that he will never fail you. At the end of these things, God will indeed make all things right. He will fix it all. Jesus fulfills this. These babies who die point us forward to it. The very last prophecy is a little different than the other two. Even the way he says it. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled to spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. There is not one verse in the entire Bible that says, he shall be called a Nazarene, not one. That's why he isn't called a prophet, or say the prophet, he says which is spoken by the prophets. 
Part of what Matthew does so beautifully in this section is he teaches us how to read the scripture in light of Jesus. That all of it's about him. And so what Matthew does here is he picks up themes throughout the whole Old Testament. Themes that come up and we're going to talk about in a moment. And he picks up these themes and he says, because of these things in the Bible, that means he's going to be called a Nazarene. Which even happens to be a slightly a pun on the word for branch. So he picks up on two different themes here. One theme is that Christ is going to be the holy warrior. Right? We have the Nazarite vow. Probably the most famous or infamous, depending on how you want to look at it, the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. Samson was, for all his flaws, he was a mighty warrior. Jesus steps onto the scene as the holy warrior. But not just any holy warrior. Because as I mentioned, this word for Nazarene is kind of a play on words with the word for branch. The branch. You sing about it in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Right? The branch from the dead stump of Jesse's tree. That branch. The Savior. The Messiah. The Christ. The one who will bring salvation. The one whose cross turns into a tree. As you hear throughout the Bible, all the birds of the nations come and nest in it. That is, all will come and be saved in him. And so what Matthew does is gives you a picture by saying he'll be called a Nazarene, that Jesus is going to be the holy warrior. But not just any holy warrior who fights on your behalf. He is the Davidic king. The king promised. The king who will live and reign forever. The king who has the holy warrior lives and fights on your behalf against the world, Satan, and all those who be opposed to you and your salvation. Coupled with that, Nazareth, as you know from various stories in the Bible, is a look down upon town. It's also a beautiful picture of his humility. So we bring these together. We have the humble holy warrior king. And he does all of that, as we've been saying, for you and your salvation. He fights and defeats the devil through dying on the cross and rising again. He fights and defeats the devil even now, right? He casts him out of heaven. He came down to earth in great rage and goes against you, his church, and yet at his name the devil and the demons flee. For you, very practically as well, there's a couple places in the Bible where you, as Christians, followers of Christ, are called Nazarenes. <laughs> because you too, in Christ, are holy warriors. Who daily must take up the armor that's mentioned in Ephesians 6. You take up the armor which is Christ, and you're sent out daily into battle. As the world, the devil, and even your own sinful flesh work against you. You strive to live the Christian life. And yet, in Christ, you are a holy warrior. In Christ, too, you're a branch who's been engrafted into the branch, into the tree, into the place of salvation. And so, too, as our Lord came from humble origins, so, too, we're called to live lives of humility. Looking to him, trusting in him, that he has defeated the devil for us. That our hopes in this daily battle as holy warriors against the world, the devil, and our sinful flesh, is not in ourselves, our own strength and power, but in humility we completely cast ourselves upon Christ, the holy warrior, 
and trust all things into his loving hands. Matthew shows us in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus comes and he fulfills all of scripture for you. He comes and he relives the history of Israel for you. He does it right. He doesn't let God down. He doesn't fail. He doesn't sin. He doesn't break the covenant. He keeps it perfectly. And even in everything he does as well, it anticipates the history of the church, who, as we've seen, will have Herods who come and try to oppress the church, who will shed the blood of God's people. And yet their blood will not go unavenged. They will give account for all that they've done against God's people. Rachel's lamentation will indeed return to an everlasting rejoicing. It begins here and now at the feast, as we celebrate the light and all of Christ's gifts. But it's a joy that has no end, and that cannot ever be taken from you. You are holy warriors, consecrating your baptism to live lives of devotion to Christ. You are branches that are grafted into the branch, the dominant tree of the whole world, whose kingdom continues to grow and fill the worlds, as all the birds of the nations go to its branches for safety and rest. And so too, Christ shows us that your humility, here and now, will one day be turned into glory. You are raised up with him, and perfected, and raised in glory forever and ever. So as you enter a new year, place each and every day into the hands of the ones who died for you. Rejoice, be confident, Go forth knowing that everything, your future, your time, your days, are all in his hands. The one who fulfilled all of scripture for you. The one who died and rose again for you. The one who is coming again for you to set all things right. You can live in 2022 no matter what happens. In hope and confidence and joy. Because of Jesus Christ your Savior. Amen. Peace of God passes on your sin and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.